Philippians 2. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to teach this glorious passage. May our hearts be ready, may our minds be ready, Lord, may the complexities be simplified, but may the truth not be lost. May we gaze upon your Son, and seeing him, may our hearts be changed. May our lives be changed. Have your way with us this day, we pray. In his name, amen. So, Philippians 2, we are now up to verse 5, 6, and 7 this week. This is just the, some of the deepest and richest scripture in the whole of the Bible. It's difficult and exciting to preach because on the one hand, you won't get a better batch of scripture to teach as a preacher. On the other hand, you, you can never do it justice. And, and again, how do I communicate the complexities in a way that doesn't fly too far over your heads, but yet at the same point for you to see the depth of the passage as God intends, intended for us to see. So it's a tricky passage, and I hope you'll bear with me as I try and work through it. The first thing I want for us to note, and many versions will typeset this passage to show this, but many don't, but really from verse 6 and on, this is a hymn. It's a song. It's poetic. And we don't have enough people trying to write songs that stick to these scriptures, but this is really a song. It's almost, and we've said this before in Ephesians, and we said it before in Colossians, but it's almost as if Paul, he's talking, he's reasoning, and then he breaks into song. I'd l I tell you, I'd love to know the first time this was read to the Philippian church. Was this a song that Paul wrote as part of this passage? Or was this Paul quoting a well-known hymn? When the person read it to the church at Philippi, the first time it was read. Did he sing it? Did everybody sing along with him? I don't know. But I'd love to know. But I need you to have that in mind because this is a glorious hymn of praise to who Jesus is. Our background as we come to it is simply that we're seeing here the importance of being of the same mind. The, us as the church seeing things the same way. No, not agreeing on everything. We can disagree on politics. We can disagree on, you know, we have 4th of July. We can disagree on patriotism. We can disagree on different aspects of theology. We can disagree on all sorts of things. But we need to have the same mind in the sense that we are prepared to put aside any rivalry any conceit, any pride, to put it aside and to consider each other to be more important than us. To have this oneness, this love, this fellowship, this affectionate empathy that we've been speaking of, where our love and our concern and our thoughts one for another are such that our own desires and our own will and the desire to see ourselves lifted up will be put aside for the sake of others. And in that regard, we saw in verse 5 that this is the mind that we should have. The same mind that was referenced in verse 2 twice, the same mind of one mind, he says. He says, have this mind. So this is the same mind that we should have among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And it's the mind of Christ. And so now we're going to look. We're going to look at Christ's mind. Because this is the mind that I need to have. This is the mind that you need to have. This is how we need to think of one another. We need to think of one another in a way that is, we have in Christ Jesus. We spoke about that last time. That because he's given us his Holy Spirit, 
we are enabled to live this way. At the same point, this is the mind of Christ Jesus. That this is the way that he lived, it's the way that he thought, and it's the example that we should follow. And so with that in mind, let's have a look at this Christ. This one whose example of humility we should follow. This one whom we worship. So in verse 6, the song, the hymn starts and says, Who, that's referring to Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this is tricky. And part of the problem here is I could read you five different versions, and the five different versions would render it in five different ways. And it's a difficult passage, it's complex in the original, but the truth is important, so we need to kind of dig in and find it. Literally, in the Greek, it says, it says, having or existing in the form of God. So the first question, as we try to understand this passage, is that that participle, or if you're not good with English, that ing word, existing in the form of God, having existed in the form of God, do we understand that as a cause, and some versions translate it that way, because he existed in the form of God, or do we understand it what's called concessively, although, although he existed in the form of God? Now, some versions say because he existed in the form of God. And that's possible as far as verse 6 goes. The trouble is when we get to verse 7, it becomes more difficult. But a lot of Christians like to say because, because it's a more definitive statement of his deity. Because he exists in the form of God. And we like that. It's tempting to us. But, but the flow of the passage doesn't suggest that. And if you're worried about the deity of Christ, by the time we finish this hymn in verse 11, you're going to see the deity of Christ more clearly in this passage than you see it almost anywhere else in Scripture. This passage just bleeds the deity of Christ. So there's, there's nothing to worry about or to be concerned about in that regard. So... I think that, and I'll show you this in verse 7, I think the best way it should be translated and understood is concessively. So it's to say, although he existed, although he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now if you have it as because, if your version says because, it'll probably talk about equality with God as being robbery. Some versions use the word robbery. If you have cause, because he existed in the form of God, then the later word has to be translated robbery. He exists in the form of God, and so it's not robbery for this equality to be his. But if we translate it concessively, which I am here and the ESV does, though he existed in the form of God, then rather than this equality is something that's been taken, it's something not to be grasped, not to be taken. And so that's why you have differences in translation. Now if you're getting a bit lost here, I'm going to simplify it at this point, okay? Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Now, that at first glance can look contradictory. If he exists in the form of God, then surely he has equality with God, and that's not something that can be grasped, right? And the problem is, is that we look at the text and we see form of God and equality with God as being the same thing. They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. I'm going to show you that. So that's our first step to understanding this passage. Okay? Bear with me with the concessive. Although, even though he existed in the form of God, 
He didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be clung onto. Okay? So there's two separate things. There's form of God and equality with God. How are they different? How are they different? Okay. Firstly, form of God. When people look at this passage, immediately they think the, past, the part that teaches the deity of Christ must be equality with God. He's equal with God, so he must be God, right? Well, actually, the deity is in the previous passage. To have the form of God in English can imply, well, here's God, let's make something that looks like God, that's the form of God. But that's not what the Greek word implies. The word form in Greek implies the same. In other words, for Paul to say that Jesus existed in the form of God, he's saying that he was God. It's just like John 1.1 where we're told that in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God. Oh, well now we've got two different things. There's the Word and there's God. And the Word's with God, but they're different. But the Word was God. Oh, they're the same. What's happening is we see the distinction in the Trinity that Jesus is distinct from the Father. The Word is with God. But everything that the Father was that made him God, the Son was too. He was in the form of God. So Jesus being in the form of God doesn't make him like God or looking like God or similar to God. It makes him God. And so Paul's point is, although, even though Jesus existed from eternity past and he was God, he was in the form of God in the same way as John 1.1 in that everything that made the Father God, the Son had too. The Father is God, and the Son is God, and Jesus is God, and he existed as God for eternity past. But, even though that was the case, equality with God was not something he felt the need to cling on to. What does that mean? If he's not equal to God anymore, then does that mean he's not God? No, 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 no. John 14 and uh, verse 28, Jesus explicitly says, the Father is greater than I. How does that work? If the Father's God and the Son is God, how can the Father be greater than the Son? How can God be greater than God? That makes no sense. And that's the difference between form of God and equality with God. Form of God is who Christ is. Who is this Jesus? He's God. Always was, always existed that way, always will be God. That will never, ever, 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 one more, ever change. He was God from the beginning. He created the heavens and the earth. We saw that in Colossians 1. He is God and will always be God. But even though, you see the concessive nature, even though that is who he is, living, existing with the equality with the Father practically, is not something that he needed to hang on to to retain his deity. Let's take a step back and look at this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Specifically, we learn as the revelation of Scripture progresses from Genesis on that the one within the Trinity who did the act of creation was Christ himself. That Christ is creator. He is God. 
And then there comes a point, and we're going to be talking about this for the bulk of our message today. There comes a point in history where Christ in glory, creating, existing, creating the heavens and the earth, there in glory, side by side with the Father, there comes a point in history where he says, here I am, side by side in glory, and if I let go of that practical equality, if I let go of that glory, I'm still God. You see, Jesus in glory who creates is God. Jesus who came as a man is still God. Jesus who hung on a cross is still God. Jesus who rose from the dead is still God. And Jesus, who will be exalted, literally in the Greek, I can't wait to get to this part, super exalted. Oh, that's fun, isn't it? it it's all, I, can't, I can't resist it. I'm going to give you a little preview, a little trailer for what's coming. It's as if he existed in glory and was exalted. He's humbled and becomes a man. And then at the end, he is super exalted. He gets exalted higher than he was exalted in the first place. And he's still God. You see, Jesus is God through all of those changes. And so, when he starts that journey, he is exalted with the Father, and he puts aside that exaltation, he puts aside that equality with God, and he puts it aside. Now, here is where, and hopefully that really helps us get our heads around verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, that's him being God, existing, and he always will be God. He didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. He doesn't have to hang on to that. He doesn't have to cling on to that. He can let go of that equality practically and still be in the form of God. Now look at verse 7. But, and that's why we have to translate verse 6, not as because, but although. Because it's linked to this other point. It says in the ESV, but made himself nothing. Which I think is a shame. The word literally is he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Here he is. He's in the form of God, right? We've established a principle in verse 6. Here's our principle. Jesus is God inherently, and he can put aside the practical equalities of glory, and he remains God. And so being able to do that, he empties himself. He takes something that he has, and he removes it. And he does it himself. Willingly, obediently to the Father, but he does it himself. So there is a point in history where Christ empties. Now this emptying is fraught with difficulties and complications. I'll try and touch on it, but I'm aware that this is a heavy sermon anyway. But I'm going to try and touch on it. But in a broad sense, he put aside his glory and he put aside his majesty. And the Greek here then says, by taking. By taking. This is how he emptied himself. By taking the form of a slave, a servant. So, this is how he emptied himself. Now listen, if I've got a box, right, I have a box, and my box is full, 
here's my box sitting in front of me, imagine a box, and there's stuff coming out the top of it, it's overflowing. If I want that box to be empty, then I take things out of the box, right? To make the box empty. Here's the bizarre paradox, is for Christ to become empty, there's the implication that there are things put aside, but predominantly it was something that was actually added and taken on. Jesus took something he didn't already have. So when we look at emptying, there is, there is an implication of things being taken away. But in this text specifically, there is the focus on what was taken on so that the other things could be lost. Now let's have a look at this practically. This is where it gets really, really tricky, okay? Jesus in glory emptied himself and he put aside a certain number of things. Now theologians debate endlessly on what he put aside and we'll talk about that first. Then we'll move on to him taking it on, okay? In emptying himself, he takes on human form, he takes on the form of a servant. So in doing that, there are things that by the nature of humanity have to be put aside. He put aside his glory. He put aside his majesty. When Christ appears in Old Testament times, before the incarnation, he could be seen in his glory. Isaiah chapter 6 Isaiah has a vision of God, high and lifted up, exalted. Now we're going to come to Isaiah 6 in the next couple of weeks, so I'm not going to spoil it for you too much. But Isaiah sees God in his glory, and there's a lot of good evidence, we're going to come to it in future weeks, but there's good evidence to suggest that the person of the Trinity that Isaiah saw was Jesus Christ. Just go with me on that for now for a week or two, okay? He sees Jesus Christ and he's like, he sees the glory of Christ and he sees his own sin and he's, I'm a man of unclean lips. He knows he's, he's seen the presence of God, he's going to die. And so a cold is given he's, and he's cleansed so that he can be in the presence of the glorified Christ. And yet, when Jesus was a man of Nazareth, walking around, you could have brushed shoulders with him in the street and you never have known. Don't get distracted. Don't get, don't get conned by medieval paintings of Jesus with a halo over his head walking a couple of inches off the ground. You know, you, you've got these paintings of old, and they're wonderful paintings. They're amazing. They're part of our history and our heritage. But I'm sorry, when you have pictures of Jesus breaking the bread to feed the 5,000, he wasn't shining. He didn't have a halo on his head. You literally could have brushed shoulders with him. We're told by the scripture that there was nothing about his appearance that was outwardly attractive. He's just a regular Jewish guy. Probably had a large nose, about five foot tall, dark hair. That's what they look like, typically. You, you, you walk down the street, and you're like, I've heard about this Jesus guy, who is he? Oh, you just walk past him. And yet, there's the one that Isaiah sees, and he can't live in his presence without being cleansed from his sin. There's all of that glory. Now, we're coming up in Mark's Gospel, in our evening studies, to the transfiguration, where briefly, just briefly, that glory is temporarily seen by three people. But for the bulk of his ministry that's covered up, the glory is gone. And what is interesting is that Jesus created man, and he comes to earth, and the men he created reject him. Now, most theologians will argue that Jesus was still omnipotent, all-powerful, 
Why? Because he did amazing miracles. They'll argue that he was omniscient, all-knowing. Why? Because he saw what was in their hearts. And they'll argue that he was omnipresent, because there's a couple of times in the Gospel where one minute he's here and the next minute he's there. But I disagree. Because we're told specifically that the coming of the Son of Man at that time was not known by him, but only by the Father. If there's one thing you don't know, you're not omniscient. You're not all-knowing. You're mostly knowing, a lot of knowing, a huge amount of knowing, a spooky amount of knowing, but not all-knowing. There were times when Jesus wasn't able to do certain things. He was able to do amazing things, but not everything. And clearly, for the bulk of his human ministry, he's limited by human flesh to being in one place at one time. He's no longer omnipresent. You see, those attributes of God were put aside when he became human. They were put aside. So in what way did he remain God? If we think of God as being omnipresent, omniscient, and, and uh, omnipresent, if Jesus is no longer those things, how is he still God? Well, that's the equality with God that he's put aside. That he feels he doesn't have to grasp to still be God. What John says in his Gospel is amazing. John says that we beheld his glory. John says, we beheld his glory. And he says it's the beginning of, of his first uh, letter as well. You know, uh, he starts off by saying that, that we are the ones who beheld his glory. Now listen, John in his gospel and John in his letters, John never mentions the transfiguration. And yet he was there. Because for John, the glory of Jesus is not the shining brilliance. The glory of Jesus is the fact that the covenant keeping love of God was seen through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to get a little distracted here, but this is an important point. In the Bible, Psalm 97 as an example, God is often referred to as the God above all gods, right? We sometimes sing that in songs based on Psalms. You are a God above all gods, right? What other gods? Because sometimes we like to think that he is the only God, right? But the term God was used as spiritual beings generally. There are other spiritual beings. There are angels. There are demons. And he is the God who is above all of those gods, all those other gods, right? Now, being the God above all other gods... What made Yahweh the God of the Old Testament for Israel? What made him? Was it because he was just simply greater than the other gods? No, it was that he had a covenant with them. That he, the great creator God, made a covenant with Israel and said, I will love you. You are my people. You will fail me, but I won't fail you. When he made the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, they sliced, God sliced animals down the middle, almost like the middle aisle of this church. And he put, spread them apart like that. Because under ancient covenant treaties, that's what would happen. A big, powerful nation would say, I'm cutting these animals, and I'm going to put them like this, and you, little nation, are going to walk down the middle between these animals, as a reminder to you, as you look at the half animal on this side and the half animal on that side, as a reminder that if you cross me, I'm bigger than you. And what happened to these animals will happen to you. But you keep the covenant and we're all good. We're not going to invade you. We're not going to attack you. We're not going to destroy you. We're like this. We're buddies. We're close. Yeah? And then what God did is the most amazing thing, is he set up this covenant. And then he made Abraham fall into a deep sleep. And the presence of God came, and God 
walked through that aisle. He said, though I'm the mighty one, I'm the one promising to keep this covenant. God had this covenant love with Israel. And that covenant was, was a covenant that ultimately is going to be this, this, this nature of God to love and be faithful despite all that we do is ultimately seen in the new covenant, which was a covenant that was ratified and made by the cross of Jesus Christ. So when John says we've seen his glory, what he means is, not the shining brilliance, what he means is this. He means you get to see the character of God in the person of Jesus Christ like nowhere else in history. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, he's there in the form of God, but he's letting go of equality with God practically. He's putting aside his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, because he's coming in the form of a servant. He's coming and he's putting aside all of his glory to be a human, because in that humanity, we're going to see the form of God. Listen, the point of the gospel is not when they announce that there is going to be this birth, or the birth has just happened, and the angels of the Lord were there, and glory shines around. That's not the glory of the gospel. The glory of the gospel is when Jesus whipped skin and flesh ripped off, barely alive, barely able to breathe, barely able to speak, hangs on a cross, and as he breathes his last, he says, Tetelestai. It is finished. It's paid in full. That's the glory of God. The glory of God is Jesus Christ putting aside his majesty, coming as a human being. How does the one who created heaven exist in the form of a fetus in the womb with a brain that doesn't even function. How? Don't ask me, I haven't got a clue. I have no idea. But he comes, and the one who knew all things is now limited by a brain that has to develop slowly at the same rate of any other child's brain. Some of you have got kids who are two and three. Do you know that a three-year-old has a brain that is developed to the same degree as an adult pig? Jesus went through that slow development, having previously known all things. And he comes to the world that he's created, learns who he is, grows in the word and comes to the point 30 years in where he's ready for ministry and the father says, okay, you've put aside all your power, you've put aside, but I'm now going to give you your, the spirit. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can do things you weren't able to do before. You can understand and see things you couldn't see before. And Christ, as a man empowered by God's Spirit, with the same limitations as any man empowered by God's Spirit, goes and does God's work. And he says, John 14, 28 again, the Father is greater than I. Why? Because the Father does know all things. The Father is omnipotent. The Father is omnipresent. And here's Jesus only knowing what the Father tells him. Here's Jesus only doing what the Father tells him to do. Here's Jesus only in one place, in one human body, walking around limited by the frailties of human flesh. Getting tired when he walks in the heat and doesn't have enough water. Getting, getting blisters on his dirty, dusty feet. And in the midst of all of that, the, on the world that he created, the people that he created to glorify the Father. Those people turned their backs on him. They slandered him. And eventually, they killed him. And he did all of that 
so that as he died, he could say, it is finished. This thing I've done, this emptying of myself, it's now over. It's finished. And what did he accomplish? What did he do all of that for? He did it for us. He did it so that we could be in him and he could be in us. He did it because the Father chose us and he did it that we might be redeemed and the ones that the Father chose he would have by the blood of Christ. He did it so that our sin would be dealt with without reneging on the holiness of the Father. He did it so that we would be free from the power of sin. He did it that we could become temples of the Holy Spirit. He did it that the Father would be glorified. But we won't go out of our way for each other because we're too important. <sighs> you see, we can glorify Christ in these verses and we bring it back to the context and it's brutal. It's brutal because it exposes us. There's one really delightful little play on words here. In verse 3, going back, it said, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Older versions for conceit will say vanity. Literally in the Greek, the word is vain glory or, or empty glory. And it, the, the empty part is literally combining of two words, empty and glory. And then in verse, uh, verse 6, we're told that Jesus emptied himself. Oh, sorry, verse 7. He emptied himself. That's why I don't like the made nothing in the ESV. That's what it's kind of doing. It's him, it's him humbling and lowering himself, but he does it by emptying. And can you see the play on words here? That we have a desire for empty glory. And the one who had glory emptied himself. Man, that's just... That is brutal to our, our pride, is it not? That the one who had all the glory, who had everything, who had that equality, to, equality with God practically, he let go of it, remains God, the form of God, but let go of that equality, let go of that glory, let go of everything for us and for the Father to be glorified. He let go of it all. And the context of all of this is why are you trying to glorify yourself? Why are you worried about getting one up on that person? Why are you worried about your own well-being? Why are you worried about your welfare? Why are you worried about keeping that for yourself? Why are you, why are you bothered about making yourself vulnerable again? Why are you worried about these things? Why? Are you a Christ follower? Do you know what that means? This culture has made Christianity to be a get-out-of-jail card that you put in your back pocket so you're all right when you die. It is, a, it is a travesty of the message of Scripture. We are Christ followers. We are the followers of the one who put aside his glory, put aside his majesty and empty himself and there is no place for empty glory and the pursuit of empty glory in our own lives. None at all. The issue is not, do you believe that there was a man called Jesus? The issue is not, do you believe that he was also God? The issue is not, do you believe he died on the cross for the sins of the world? The issue is, do you trust him? Have you embraced him? Do you follow him? And so, he empties himself. He takes the form of a doulos, a slave, a bondservant, a willing servant, a willing slave, 
being born in the likeness of men. That was his emptying. His emptying was, yes, he lost those things, but he took on humanity. He took on humanity. That was his sacrifice, his curse, if you like. That was him taking something upon that he didn't already have. He had glory, but he took on humanity. And what is interesting in the text here, and there's something very strange in verses 7 and 8, I, I haven't worked it out yet actually, but, but in some versions there's a phrase that makes verse 7, in other versions it becomes part of verse 8. In, in the ESV it becomes part of verse 8. Um, it says, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Now, in a sense, that's almost a repetition. It's a repetition with a slight difference, okay? Firstly, let's look at the difference. Um, he's doing a contrast here. He says that in verse 8, being found in human form. And the word there, form, is the same word for form earlier on, where it says in the form of God. And there is your link. He was God. He still is God. But now he's also man. He was God, remains God, but by bringing, by taking on human likeness, he has human form, which remember we said earlier, is his, it's not just looking like, that's the other word, that's likeness, it's actually being human. He's now human. He, he, he was resurrected to a glorified body, and so he will always be human. That to me is bizarre. The Son took on humanity for eternity. And so we have that contrast, form of, form of God, form of man. But then you notice the repetition. The repetition is, uh, is saying he's born, again, it's slightly different, he's born in the likeness of man, so he looks like a man because he's in the form of man, because he is a man. So he looks like a man because he is a man. And that creates a sort of a sense of repetition. And, and when we do repetition, sometimes we're drawing attention. It's like, um, when I was looking out the window the other day, what I saw out of the window, and at this point you're like, yeah, what did you see? Because you said it twice, so it's drawing your attention to it. So, linguistically, what Paul's doing here with this repetition, although there's some subtleties he's, he, he's showing us, as I've said, he's drawing our attention to the next phrase. So, he's, he's uh, made himself nothing, he's emptied himself, he's taken on the form of a servant, He's done that by being born looking like a man because he has become a man, okay? And then it says, he humbled himself. That's the point that Paul is building to. Now we're going to come back um, to verse 8 a little bit next time. Um, yeah, we'll need to come back to it to kind of lead into verse 9. But just briefly now... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, ultimately, there are, there's so much richness here, okay? Firstly, obedient. He's in the form of God. Obedient? Well, where does obedient come into it? He's God. He's there in glory. He creates the heavens and the earth because he's not grasping on to the equality with God practically so that he can become a servant and he can say, I only do what the Father tells me to do. The Father is greater than I am. You see how that happens? That's the emptying. Theologians, by the way, call this the kenosis, the emptying of Christ. Now he can become a slave in his humanity. Now he can be obedient. And in his obedience, he does what the Father tells him to do, even to the point of death, and even the death on a cross. The most excruciating death, the most painful death, the most humiliating death. A death that would curse a Jewish man, or was seen as a curse to a Jewish man. Now, I've spoken about the cross, I've spoken about the redemption at the cross. 
But I want to I end today just again as we, we come to verse 9 next time. And by the way, everything rests on that therefore in verse 9. Therefore, because of everything we're talking about this week, there's something that's coming. And I tell you, it's even deeper and even richer than what we've done this week. I'm going to probably spend two weeks in the next three verses. There's too much to cover in a week. Okay? But that's all coming. But let's just take a step back and let, look at the context of all of this. Okay? The context is that Christ modeled for us humility. That's the whole point of chapter 2. It's the whole point of the book of Philippians. It's the whole reason for the writing of the book. Is this love that we should have for one another, this unity that we have in Christ, and because our unity is in Christ, we need to be following Christ. And Christ set the model for humility, which is obedience, whatever the price. When God commands us to do something in his word, sometimes it sucks. Practically. Sometimes being faithful to God will cost us our happiness. Sometimes it will cost us our, our, our financial well-being. It, it will cost us all sorts of things. And for some, it may cost us our lives. Are we playing church? Are we simply doing what we do every week? Are we simply part of the scenery of church, of Christianity? Or do we see Christ as our Lord? And do we desire to humble ourselves to follow in his example? There's no easy answer to that. We have to dig in our hearts really deep. We're selfish. We're proud. We desire to be glorified empty vain glory that we all want and, and the process of our emptying can be brutal just God just ripping from us things that we dearly hold on to Christ says I'm not going to look at equality with God, this glorified state, as being something I need to grip. Let go. And we cling. We cling to our pride, to our rights, to our will, to our way. But I shouldn't be hurt. But I shouldn't have to put up with this. But that's not fair. But that's not how it should be. Correct, 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 correct. That the question still remains. Are you going to be obedient even in the midst of that? It's a question I can't answer for you and you can't answer for me. It's a question that we must answer ourselves in the quiet place. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you um, just, just amazed at the sacrifice of your son. Everything that was lost, everything that was put aside, everything that was endured for your glory. out of love for us. And when we see, we see him in such, 
in such glory, the glory of his character, the glory of his covenant-keeping, faithful love. We become so aware of our sin, of our pride, of our stubborn unwillingness to let go. Forgive us. Forgive us where we've sinned. Forgive us for pursuing our own, our own life, our own wealth, our own happiness, our own everything. May you make this church a church. May we love one another. May we consider one another more important than ourselves. And may we trust that you who exalted him in verses 9 through 11 will one day lift us up. May we know that every time we humble ourselves that we might be hurt, though we might be foolish in the eyes of the world, may we trust in you and know that every time is a time that you remember and it's a time that you reward. Help us to be more like your son. I'm scared to pray it, but I prayed anyway. Empty us, Lord. You've been doing it, and you're going to keep doing it. So empty us. Get us where you need us to be. May we mature so that we look more like him. Amen.